Hi everyone, uh, welcome to the Horse.com's Ask the Vet Live. Tonight our topic is botulism and horses. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, digital editor of the Horse.com. Our event tonight is brought to you free from our sponsor, Neogen. We're joined tonight by our two experts, Dr. Amy Johnson, who is an internal medicine specialist from the University of Pennsylvania, and Dr. James Little, who is with Neogen. Welcome, doctors. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, Dr. Johnson, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with botulism? Sure. I deal with it in a couple of different aspects. First, we live in an area where botulism is fairly common, and so every year there are several horses that are brought to our hospital and kept hospitalized for prolonged periods for treatment of botulism. We also sometimes see cattle um, and our small animal clinic, occasionally dogs that have botulism. It's also one of my areas of research focus, um, both in gathering information about the occurrence of the disease in North America, as well as trying to improve the diagnostic tests that we use for botulism. Okay. And Dr. Little, can you tell us a little bit about your involvement with this disease? Sure. I was uh, fortunate enough to spend about 13 years in private practice and in, in large animal practice in Tennessee. And in dealing with, with horses and cattle, I wasn't in an area that was quite as prevalent of an area for botulism as what Pennsylvania is, but still it was an area where it was present. And currently I'm the Director of Professional Services for Neogen, uh, which uh, produces a type B botulism vaccine for horses. And since uh, working here, I've uh, certainly become more involved with the disease as far as learning its, its origins, causes, treatments, and certainly prevention. Okay. And thank you for joining us tonight and, and helping to give our listeners some great information about this, uh, this topic. I want to let everyone know that this is an hour-long live event. We have questions that were submitted during registration. If you asked a question during registration, uh, I ask that you sit back with your question because it might come up over the hour. If you have any follow-up questions or questions that you didn't get a chance to submit, you're welcome to enter those in the console in front of you that's in your web browser. Go ahead and type that in and hit send. And and we will receive that. Our news editor, Erica Larson, is quietly in the background reading those as they come in. We have a lot of ground to cover, as we always do, because we get so, so many great questions. So let's go ahead and, and jump right into this topic, because uh, this one, honestly, uh, Dr. Johnson, is one that, that I wasn't personally all that familiar with. Um, so let's start out with a question for you that is from Dr. Jonas, who is in the United Arab Emirates, and he is asking, what is botulism? Botulism is a disease of both animals and people uh, that have the misfortune of being exposed to a toxin produced by a bacteria called Clostridium botulinum, and this is a neurotoxin that affects neuromuscular transmission. So in other words, it actually blocks the ability of the nerves of the body to tell the muscles to contract. And this causes a profound generalized muscle weakness. And so in horses, the typical clinical signs are those of this generalized weakness. And what we see are things like an abnormal stance or a very short-strided gait um, the horse may lie down frequently, and then when you look closely at the horse, they have weak tongue muscles, weak tail muscles, um, weak eyelids, and in particular, these horses have difficulty swallowing because the muscles they need to do that are severely affected by this toxin. And I know... You know, I've heard of botulism from canning, you know, being a gardener and canning, you were very careful about canning methods and humans getting it. And in humans, it's a very small amount um, of botulism toxin that, that can be fatal, is my understanding. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but um, is it the same with horses? Is it a, a small amount of this? Absolutely. It's a very small amount. I mean, we're talking you know, milligrams or less that cause the problem in horses. And botulism toxin is really the most potent toxin known to mankind. And horses are the species that are the most susceptible to it. So it really doesn't take very much at all. And 
you know, if you have just a little bit of toxin, it can thicken a great number of horses. Okay. And so other than canned green beans <laughs> and botulism, yeah, I've, I've often heard of it in foals, shaker syndrome and foals. Can you tell us a little bit about how it affects foals and, and what ends up happening to them if, if they get in contact with this? Sure. So, I mean, as we discussed, both adults and foals can suffer from botulism. They acquire the disease in slightly different ways in that the adult horses are usually ingesting the toxin itself uh, produced by the bacteria. It's termed forage poisoning usually, whereas the foals tend to actually ingest the organism. And because they do not have a mature gastrointestinal tract like horses do, they can't fight off this organism and the organism can actually um, colonize, we'll say, the foal's intestinal tract and start producing toxin within the foal. And when they absorb this toxin from their GI tract, they start showing the signs of muscle weakness that adult horses do. And they're, they have a very characteristic clinical appearance, and as you refer to them, shaker foals, because when they stand, they'll, their legs will shake, their muscles will tremor. And they'll try to nurse, but you'll see the milk dribbling from their mouth and sometimes their nose because of the difficulty swallowing it. And as the disease progresses, they'll lie down more and more and only be able to stand for very short periods of time with increased amounts of shaking. And then we end up with those just saddest little foals in the ICU. <laughs> we have lots of pictures of them um, in our database here at the horse uh, of the little guys in intensive care. Um, so, Dr. Little, can you tell us a little bit about how the horses can contract the disease? Uh, Dr. Johnson has shared um, a little bit about that with us, but we do have a question from Wendy Carter, who is in the United Kingdom, and she wants to know specifically, how can my horse pick up this infection? Um, we also have a question from Buffy in Wisconsin, and she wants to know how dangerous are little critters like snakes, mice, or birds uh, that are bailed up in hay in causing botulism? Sure. Uh, just to follow up a little bit on what Dr. Johnson said, the, the disease itself really starts with a bacteria called Clostridium botulinum. That bacteria is, is found out in the environment. And uh, in order for that bacteria to grow and ultimately produce the toxin that we've spoken about, it has to be in, a, in, a, in a, an environment where there's no oxygen present. In other words, an anaerobic environment. So if the conditions are, are not anaerobic in its environment, it, it, it becomes a spore, and that spore form of that organism can really survive indefinitely. But if it finds a, a nice place where there is an anaerobic environment, that, that spore then becomes the active bacteria and produces its toxin. Now, if a horse ingests that toxin from from whatever it's eating, uh, then that's uh, that means of acquiring botulism is called forage poisoning. So the horse is actually ingesting preformed toxin from its environment, from its food source generally. There's uh, the second way, and Dr. Johnson spoke on this also, in foals, foals typically acquire the infection or the disease a little bit differently they actually ingest those dormant spores that are present out in the environment. And then once those spores actually reach the intestinal tract, they're able to become an active bacteria again and produce their toxin. And then the third way that a horse can actually pick up botulism is, is what's called wound botulism. So if a horse has a break in its skin, it doesn't have to be necessarily uh, an unintended wound, but even from a surgery site or uh, a, uh, uh, any, any break in the skin, really, if one of those spores finds its way into that wound and, again, finds a nice anaerobic spot uh, to live, it can then start to produce that toxin, and the toxin is then absorbed through or into the bloodstream and causes its problems. So three real different ways uh, that horses pick up botulism. And as far as the, the little critters, the snakes, mice, birds, et cetera, that are belled up in hay, that certainly is a, a predisposing thing for botulism. Those, uh, those critters can 
actually have that bacteria or those spores inside their body. And then if they are bailed up in a bale of hay, uh, when that, the body of that animal starts to decompose, it provides, again, that nice anaerobic environment where that spore can then become the bacteria and produce its toxin. Now that's uh, that's why, uh, or that's the risk of having a, a, a critter of some sort uh, bailed up in the in the hay bale. Now we'll say that most of the time, and we'll talk more about this as we go on probably, if we are talking about a, a dead animal carcass in a bale of hay, typically that's type C uh, botulism. Okay. And so we have a question that's come in from our live audience. Shelley in Ontario, Canada, wants to know if there is a possibility that your horse can get exposed to botulism from hay. Is it possible also for humans to be exposed to botulism in hay? Dr. Johnson, do you have an answer for Shelley? It would be very, I mean, unless the human is eating the hay, they should not get botulism from the hay. So it's actually the way that horses get it from the hay is that they ingest the toxin when they're eating the hay, like Dr. Little said. And people would not be eating hay, so therefore wouldn't get exposed to the toxin. The organism itself is everywhere, and I think Dr. Little mentioned this, it is in the soil in virtually all of the country, and believe it or not, people are being exposed to this organism all the time, and if they actually eat the spore form, um, as long as they have a healthy adult GI system, it really doesn't cause any problem at all. It just passes right through. Um, the only exception to that rule, and this is a little bit of an aside, is babies that eat honey. This is why if you have small children, you always hear the recommendation, don't let babies less than a year of age eat honey. And that's because virtually all honey that's produced in this anywhere has botulism spores in it. And infants, the same as foals, don't have majority mature GI tracts, and they can actually develop botulism when they're fed honey, whereas as you and I know, adults can eat honey without a second thought because we have mature GI tracts, and therefore the bacteria can't grow. Okay, thanks. And you know, we have another question that's come in from Betty in Tucson, Arizona, who's listening to live. And Dr. Little, I'm going to send this one over your way. Uh, we've kind of answered her question, uh, but there, there's a second part to it that, that I want to ask. Um, she's asking, where do the bacteria come from? And, you know, Dr. Johnson says, uh, told us already that it's everywhere. Um, but Betty also wants to know, is it, can it be contracted by the horses from grass or from another horse? Uh, usually it is not uh, spread from horse to horse. Uh, the way that uh, potential pickup of the botulism from grass would be, again, picking up the spores that are in the environment. They're in the soil. If they're in the soil, obviously the grass is coming from the soil. So there's potential for the spores to be on the grass. So a horse, as it's eating or picking grass, certainly could ingest the spores that way. Now, if it's an adult horse, again, typically that doesn't cause a problem. If it's a foal or a, a young horse that doesn't have a mature uh, flora within its gut, then potentially it could develop the shaker foal syndrome that way. If uh, there were potentially areas of matted grass, let's say uh, in a field or wherever the horse is grazing, again, or uh, some area where grass has, is either matted or it's compressed or there's old grass clippings potentially. And if that uh, contained the spores by chance, and again, it was a nice sealed environment where there's no oxygen, that would be a potential environment where toxin could be produced. But that, uh, that would be much, uh, I believe, much less common. Okay. And our next question is for Dr. Johnson. Um, and it comes in from Denise, who is from South Africa. And she said that she had you know, African horse sickness is something that they're concerned about in South Africa. And she recently at a local uh, stud or ranch, uh, two foals were, died in one week, one of African horse sickness and the other one with botulism, she said that the symptoms or clinical signs of the two diseases are similar. How could they have been diagnosed prior to the foals dying as two separate diseases? 
Aleppo. Uh, luckily, I don't have a lot of experience with African horse sickness. I've heard it's a, a terrible disease, but from what I understand, uh, like botulism, it can cause respiratory failure and sudden death. And I haven't mentioned this earlier, but that is the way that botulism causes death in animals by inhibiting the respiratory muscles from working so the animal actually can't breathe, and that is how it kills animals. And the difference would be that prior to the respiratory failure, botulism should cause these signs of increasing muscle weakness and difficulty swallowing or eating, which we term dysphagia. And in terms of diagnosing botulism, it's generally a clinical diagnosis because the lab tests take some time and even in true cases of botulism are not always positive. So we always say that you should try to diagnose botulism by your exam of the animal. So both seeing these signs of muscle weakness and difficulty swallowing, as well as a couple of clinical tests that have been described. One is assessing the strength of the horse's tongue. So pulling the tongue very gently out the side of the horse's mouth while holding the horse's mouth closed and then seeing how easily the horse pulls the tongue back into its mouth. And most normal horses, if you withdraw their tongue, they just tug or contract it one or two times and pull it back into their mouth. And a horse with botulism will have a very weak tongue and may not be able to pull it back into its mouth at all, or it may take several attempts. And the other clinical test that we frequently use is called a grain test, and it's also assessing the horse's ability to swallow and eat. For this test, we take about eight ounces or a cup of sweet feed and put it in a pan on the ground and give it to the horse and time how long it takes the horse to consume that grain. And as you know, a lot of normal horses will just inhale that small amount of grain and they will finish it in less than a minute. And if it starts to take the horse longer than two minutes to eat that small amount of grain, we start to get really worried that that horse is having difficulty swallowing, which again is consistent with botulism. So those are the clinical things we look for when we're examining a potential case. The more formal way to diagnose it is in the laboratory where we try to either confirm the presence of the neurotoxin or of this Clostridium botulinum organism in samples that come from the horse or sometimes in the suspect feed that may have contained the toxin that the horse was eating prior to becoming sick. And there are a couple of different lab tests. Historically, we've actually used um, what's called the mouse bioassay, which is a way to detect the toxin. And more recently, we have been using a PCR technique to actually identify the organism. And our next question is from uh, Ida in Nigeria. And I'm going to start with Dr. Little and Dr. Johnson. Feel free to jump in on this because uh, it's talking about emergency management, which I know you do a lot of um, at your hospital. Ida is asking, beside the use, besides the use of antibiotics, sedatives, and fluid therapy, what are some possible suggestions for um, emergency management of horses suspected of having botulism? Uh, Dr. Little, do you want to start off on that? Sure, I'll start on that. Uh, uh, the most obvious thing to do, if certainly if you're in a, in, a, in a situation where your horse or potentially even a herd of horses has has started to show signs of botulism and develop the disease itself, the most important thing to do is try and identify the source of that toxin and remove it. If we think it's coming from the hay, certainly remove that hay from the horse or from whatever the source that one may think they're getting that botulism toxin from and certainly remove that from the horse. Um, if um, we're in an outbreak situation, in other words, we, we think our whole herd potentially has been exposed, then if we're dealing with type B botulism, then we do have an emergency vaccination protocol in which we could start vaccination and, and go through the series of injections fairly quickly and, and hopefully develop uh, some protection against that disease in a 
relatively short time. Uh, but uh, I, Dr. Johnson, if you'd like to speak on the actual treatment of the disease itself, uh, please go ahead. Yeah, sure. So when we're dealing with an individual horse that is showing clinical signs of botulism, uh, I guess the two most important things that I think about are, number one, keeping that horse as quiet as possible, trying to reduce their muscle activity uh, because they will become exhausted and use up their ability basically to make their muscles contract. So the more they move around, the more quickly the signs will progress. And the most important treatment we can give to them is an antitoxin. So this is basically a plasma transfusion from horses that have been well vaccinated against botulism. So they have a lot of antibodies against this toxin. And we give the patient that is suffering from botulism, this plasma transfusion containing the antibodies, and that's what we call the antitoxin, and it will bind any botulism toxin that is circulating in the bloodstream. Now, unfortunately, this treatment, the antitoxin, cannot reverse the clinical signs that the horse is already showing. It can't remove the toxin once it has bound to the nerves of the body. It just binds the toxin that's circulating in the bloodstream. So if you have a case of botulism, it is really important to treat them with the antitoxin as soon as possible because you need to try to bind that toxin before it binds to the nerves and that will minimize the clinical signs that the horse shows. And when we were receiving questions during registration for, for this event, we got a lot of really kind of heartbreaking stories of people losing multiple herds or the or multiple members of their herd or the majority of their herd to botulism and it happening very quickly. Um, and Dr. Little, you mentioned a vaccination protocol. Is there anything an owner can do if they suspect that something's not right and that it could be botulism that might intervene and help save some of their animals? You mean after they've already started to show signs and symptoms? If you if you have one that has started to show some kind of right. symptoms that they aren't quite right, um, and you have a whole, whore, whole herd that's eating from the same source, um, what can you do? other than the vaccination protocol to protect protect the horses? Well, I think the most important thing is to, again, try to identify the source of that toxin or try to identify the source of, of where the toxin came from and remove that from the herd or from the other horses uh, to prevent ingestion in the first place. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, if, if you have a horse that's already showing signs and symptoms, I think that's, that's step number one. And then... At really being able to recognize signs of the disease very early, as Dr. Johnson mentioned, uh, implementing treatment as soon as possible is absolutely necessary to help improve the survival rate for these horses. So one, identifying signs and symptoms very early, and then if you can identify a possible source of where those horses are picking up toxins, certainly remove that source from the, from the herd. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Little. Uh, Dr. Johnson, we have a couple of questions that I'm going to um, give you here that are related. Um, we have Kay from Mississippi wants to know if horses that have had botulism and survive um, the disease, she wants to know if they're going to recover fully or if they're going to have any residual effects. Um, and then Gail, who's in Grants Pass, Oregon, says that she has a mare who had had botulism and she's recovered but she occasionally seems kind of clumsy and she's wondering if this is an is residual from from having botulism. Dr. Johnson? So in regards to whether or not affected horses uh, will have any residual conditions if they survive Luckily, they don't. If they survive this disease, they almost always recover fully, although it certainly may take a while, up to a couple of months, to regain their muscle strength. And this toxin it usually doesn't cause any residual effects, although when they have a severe form of the disease, they often lose a fair amount of weight and muscle mass, so it does take a while to regain that weight and put the muscle back on. 
if you have a horse that has a severe case of botulism and is spending a lot of time recumbent, there are sometimes secondary complications, meaning things like pressure sores, even abscesses over some of their bony points. And those conditions may persist, obviously, or cause some scarring or, or problems in the future. <laughs> in regards to the, the second question, the mare who's continuing to stumble, that would be a very unusual thing to happen in a botulism case. And I wonder in that horse if it was not another disease process rather than botulism, um, especially if she's only stumbling on, on one or two legs. That is not typical. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. Um, our next question is from L in Maryland. And Dr. Little, I'm going to give this one to you. Um, actually, there's two questions in a row that I'm going to give you here. Uh, the first is, can a horse get botulism from not cleaning out your feed pans regularly? And she also wants to know, what about wood chewing? Could they be exposed to the toxin through chewing on, on wood? And then we also have a question from uh, Gaeta in Ontario. And she says, pleading ignorance, but other than contaminated feed, and she mentions mentions syringes, which we haven't talked about uh, yet. Um, she wants to know if feed pans and water pails can be contaminated. So a lot there in, in one chunk. But Dr. Little, do you want to go for those ones? Yeah, sure. Uh, the, the cleaning out of a feed dish regularly, um, uh, that's not typically or at least is not reported typically that that's the the typical scenario from which a horse contracts botulism it would be possible again certainly if that clostridial organism is in the environment it certainly has the potential to be in the feed troughs but usually it would be in that spore form now if there were enough feed material or whatever organic debris might be in that feed dish uh, left in there, and then it has the uh, possibility of spoil, starting to spoil, uh, then that might be that perfect environment for that spore to then change again into the bacteria and start producing toxin. But that's not a, not a common route of, of intoxication, although it would be possible, but not very common. As far as wood chewing, again, it's it, uh, not a common source uh, at all. Uh, again, the spores might be present on the surface of a board or a post or uh, whatever the wood material might be, but again, it would be the spores. And if it's a foal that happens to ingest those spores from the wood or really from anything out in the environment that it might touch uh, with its mouth, if it ingests those spores, then certainly it could be uh, susceptible to the shaker foal syndrome. If it's an adult ingesting the spores, chances are it's not likely going to develop botulism uh, from that uh, situation. Okay. Um, and the portion about um, syringes, can you get past botulism through a syringe? Uh, again, not a very likely uh, possibility of the source of, of, the, of the toxin there. I uh, suppose I could think of an unusual situation against if there were uh, some real organic debris left in a syringe potentially where uh, some oral medications or other liquids may be being drenched into a horse. Uh, it's possible, again, for those uh, bacteria to live there if it's an anaerobic environment again, but really that would be a very unusual situation uh, for a, a syringe to be... Uh, you know, if it were being used to drench liquids, that would be a very uncommon way to contract botulism. And we have a live question, Dr. Little, from uh, Betty, again, in Tucson, Arizona. And she wants to know if botulism is a new problem with horses, or is this something that we've always dealt with? No, it's, it's not new. And horses, certainly it's been around probably since the, uh, the, I don't want to say the dawn of time, but Certainly this bacteria has been around for a very, very long time. I was reading uh, an article uh, recently and the, the, the organism was, or the disease really was first associated with the eating of sausages uh, in Germany actually. And uh, uh, at the time it was not clear that the actual organism was what was causing it. 
but it's recognized as early as uh, I think the 1700s, and and I'm I'm sure that the, the disease was present before then, but wasn't recorded, or we just did not uh, understand what the disease was. Okay, and so do you feel like we're getting more educated as horse owners about botulism and maybe confusing it less often with with other issues? And Dr. Johnson, you feel free to jump in on that one as well. Well, I think we're we're becoming more educated there, certainly, and there are still myths that are out there. But uh, you know, the horse has always been susceptible to botulism, and will continue to be susceptible to botulism. But our goal is to educate horse owners uh, as to uh, their risk level for their horse being exposed to or contracting botulism. Uh, and I hope as we go forward, the more we know, then the more uh, the more appropriate appropriately we'll be able to prevent and treat the disease uh, if we're affected. Okay. And Dr. Johnson, any thoughts on that? No, I just, I think like you, what you said, we're better able to recognize it. I mean, it's been a cause of sudden death in horses forever. And because it causes the horses not to be able to stand up sometimes, it can be easily confused with some other neurologic diseases like equine herpes virus or EPM and it takes a veterinarian who who knows what he or she is looking for to really be able to see the clinical signs that and make the diagnosis of botulism so i think that we we feel like it's happening more often now because it's being recognized more often and because the bad outbreaks are being more well publicized, both um, especially on the internet and through word of mouth. Okay. And is there, you mentioned that you see quite a few cases in your area in Pennsylvania. Betty's from Arizona. Is there a regional aspect to this disease? There definitely is a regional aspect, um, both in the number of cases that are seen and also the type of botulism that is seen. And we haven't really talked about this in great detail, but there are several different types of botulinum toxin. And there are three types that cause botulism in horses in this country, in the United States. So far and away, the most common is type B botulism, B as in boy. And that is the type that is endemic in my region and the Mid-Atlantic region as well as in Kentucky and basically is, is found um, in quite, you know, in, in most of the soil east of the Mississippi and it causes more than 85% of the cases of botulism in this country. However, some areas on the west coast may see type A botulism, which is the type that's in the soil out there. And then when you have a carcass that's involved, like Dr. Little alluded to earlier, that tends to be type C botulism. And to the best of my knowledge, most of the outbreaks that I've at least read about in Arizona have involved type C botulism and have been associated with carcasses. And A and B are the two soil forms, again, with with B being the most common in this country. And we have a question that's come in from a live audience. Uh, Dr. Little, Susan in Washington, D.C. wants to know if the vaccine, if the vaccines are available for type B, will that vaccine help protect horses with type C or, or type A? Unfortunately, there is no cross protection with the type B vaccine. It's only effective in the prevention of type B Dr. Johnson mentioned that's the most common type of botulism that is reported, but certainly a horse can be affected with type A, B, or C. And uh, it's unfortunate, but there is no cross-protection among the different types. Okay, thank you. And we have a question here for Dr. Johnson, and it's from Regina in Ontario. We have a lot of Canadian listeners tonight. Um and Regina wants to know how soon after ingesting botulism or the botulism toxin will a horse or foal start presenting clinical signs? Is it minutes, hours, days? How soon would you know that your horse is ill? It tends to be hours to days, and it depends almost entirely on how much of the toxin the horse ingests. So if they ingest 
a high dose of toxin, they may start showing signs within 6 to 12 hours. And unfortunately, the severity of the signs that they show is directly correlated to the toxin dose. So if you start seeing the horse show more and more severe clinical signs in a very short period of time, that horse is, is likely to have a very difficult time surviving the disease. Whereas if the horse only ingests a small toxin dose, it may take days, even up to 10 days, for them to start showing clinical signs. And the signs that they do show will probably be much less severe, meaning that they may have a little bit of difficulty swallowing, but they probably won't have the sort of severe muscle weakness that keeps them from being able to stand and walk around. Okay. And we have a question from Fabia in Colombia. And Dr. Little, this one's for you. Fabio wants to know how to differentiate between tetanus and botulism. What are the differences between these two different bacteria? That's a good question. Interesting question. Both of those diseases are actually caused by uh, toxins produced by clostridial organisms. So for botulism, it's Clostridium botulinum is the specific bacteria that produces the botulism toxin. For tetanus, it's Clostridium tetani that produces the toxin that causes tetanus. The clinical signs of those two diseases are very different. Uh, For tetanus, that animal will exhibit signs of very uh, strong muscle rigidity. In other words, the animal will be very stiff. The muscles are very contracted, contracted very rigidly. Uh, And that is because that toxin produced by the Clostridium tetani organism actually uh, does its, um, its, uh, its job by inhibiting those muscles that are uh, affected those muscles that cause uh, the muscles to not contract. I'm not being very clear there, but really the toxin inhibits those nerves uh, that are affecting uh, the opposite of contraction. So the animal is left with very contracted muscles. For botulism, that toxin is affecting the nerves that control contraction. So we're left with a very flaccid, non-contracted muscle. So in tetanus, the animal is very stiff, very rigid. The muscles are contracted. For botulism, those muscles are very weak. They're flaccid, and they're paralyzed. So two, uh, two definitely two different diseases as far as their signs and symptoms on presentation, but both are actually caused by clostridial organisms, albeit two different clostridial organisms. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Little. Uh, Our next question is for Dr. Johnson, and it's from Robin in West Virginia. And you have already mentioned that botulism is similar to uh, other neurologic diseases. Um, And Robin wants to know how to differentiate between botulism and EPM. That's a good question. In the early stages of botulism, they can actually be hard to tell apart. When we have a horse that is having trouble swallowing, and that's one of the only clinical signs the horse is showing, our two main rule outs, at least in my area, are botulism and EPM. However, as these disease progresses, they tend to look somewhat different in that with botulism, it causes weakness of the muscles that's very symmetric, meaning all four legs are affected to the same degree, um, and so they have that clinical sign as well as the difficulty swallowing. EPM can really mimic just about any neurologic disease, but it tends to have asymmetric signs, meaning it may just be one side of the body or one leg that's affected, and EPM tends to cause ataxia meaning that the horse has a loss of coordination or doesn't know exactly where their limbs are in relationship to the ground. Botulism doesn't do that. They're weak, but they know where their feet are. They're not ataxic. Um, Another difference is that EPM may cause very focal and discrete muscle atrophy, and botulism, you don't see any atrophy in the early stages. And then finally, most cases of EPM tend to have a little bit of a slower clinical course over 
you know, days to weeks to sometimes months, whereas botulism, the signs, as I mentioned earlier, tend to happen pretty quickly um, in even slow cases within a week, a week and a half. Okay. And Dr. Johnson, you had, you've already mentioned it possibly being confused uh, with equine herpes virus, the neurologic form of that disease. And then we've talked about EPM, but are there any other neurologic disease that can kind of be tricky to separate this from? I mean, every once in a while we get a horse that has a problem with their neck that leads, you know, either it's a fracture or some um, spinal cord compression in the neck region that can cause pain, which causes some of the same trembling signs that we see with botulism or may cause the horse not to be able to get up. I think that the, it's hardest to evaluate the horse if the horse really can't stand at all, like you see with the really severe cases of botulism or the severe cases of herpes virus or EPM. If the horse is able to get up and walk around, it's a little bit easier to make the distinction between botulism and the other diseases. As I mentioned earlier, botulism, they know where their feet are, they're just weak, whereas with herpes virus and EPM, they tend to have a loss of coordination as well. Okay. And our next question is for Dr. Little, and it's a question from Mesa, Arizona. It's Tamara asking. And Tamara says that there have been reports of hay in her area with botulism in it. She wants to know how long it can live in the hay and how, if that hay will ever be safe for horses. She also wants, or says that they don't know where the hay was sold from or which feed store or which batch, um, but that four horses in the area have died, suspected botulism. Um, is the hay safe? Should she throw out her hay? Um, how do you ensure that your hay is safe? Well, one, visual inspection is very important to do for that hay. Again, trying to see if it is a good good quality hay in the sense that it looks like it's been cured properly, it's been stored properly, and we don't have any areas that are obviously showing some uh, decay or decomposing. Again, that provides that perfect environment for that Clostridium organism to grow and produce its toxins. However, I mean, if you have a, a good bale of hay, if it was taken up and there happened to be clostridial uh, botulinum spores in the environment, in the soil, on the grass that was cut for the hay, then certainly those spores could be in, in a very good-looking bale of hay. And those spores can survive really indefinitely. Uh, so uh, the spores themselves could certainly stay in the hay for the lifetime of the hay or uh, really indefinitely. Um, if it's the actual toxin that's produced and living in the hay, this is also difficult to predict because that not only is that toxin very potent, but it's very stable. So uh, it, it really is fairly resistant uh, uh, the toxin is to, to decomposing also. So it takes either very high temperatures or uh, there are some chemicals that can uh, denature that toxin, but just in the environment, that, that toxin is very stable and can survive uh, indefinitely uh, or really can survive for a very long time. So it would be very important, again, to inspect the hay. If it looks good, we don't have a bad spot in that hay. If we're feeding to adult animals, chances are that that hay is fairly safe, again, if it doesn't have that bad spot that has the potential to have that, that toxin sitting in it. If it's, a very, if it's a hay that has a bad spot or we have any suspicion that there may be a chance of, of decay or decomposition in that, uh, that bale of hay, then I would not recommend feeding that, certainly. Okay. And I know here out west, I'm in, in Oregon, you know, hay prices have gone up so much in the last you know, five or six years that it can be really tempting to uh, get on Craigslist and find inexpensive hay and maybe switch suppliers. Um, I've stayed true to my hay supplier for six years. I get the same hay, the same quality, same field um, every year. Um, is it important to have relationships like that with your hay grower or do you recommend that, Dr. Little? I think absolutely. That is, uh, hay is often the spot where that organism is found, and it's all, often the, 
the the culprit in the sense that that's where the spores are, and if there happen to be a a bad spot in a bale, that's where the toxin's going to be produced, and commonly that that's the source of of the problem. So one of the most important things we can do to prevent botulism is to ensure that we have a good quality uh, source of hay and feed also for that matter. Uh, so it's important to buy your hay or to source your hay from somebody you you trust and uh, uh, somebody that's going to provide that good quality product. Okay. And we have a question that's come in from our live audience. Uh, Mary in Wisconsin, I suspect she has starlings or pigeons in her barn <laughs> that she's dealing with. She wants to know if uh, botulism spores can exist in uh, bird droppings. Uh, Dr. Johnson, are birds being messy in your barn a concern? Again, if they are passing spores in their droppings, unless the spores land somewhere where you have rotting vegetation that the horses then consume, it probably doesn't matter if the horses, even though it sounds disgusting, eat the bird droppings because they're not going to get sick from the spores. Um, if there are spores and they get into, you know, a soaking wet bale of hay, which then provides this anaerobic environment for Clostridium botulinum to germinate and start producing its toxin, that could be a problem. And there, there have been outbreaks where birds have actually, we think, carried the toxin from one place to another. They're usually birds like ravens that are eating carcasses. So it happens if there's a large carcass somewhere that birds are eating and then they're flying and landing in horse feeding areas and the horses are picking up the toxin left by the birds. But the the typical birds that are flying around and roosting in a barn would not be a major risk factor for botulism. Okay. Well, we can't then completely blame it on the starlings. I don't know if there are starlings in Wisconsin. I just know that we have starlings here and they drive us crazy in our <laughs> barns, uh, destroying our insulation. So anyway, uh, other reasons to get those out of out of your barns. Uh, we have another question, uh, Dr. Little from Mercy in New Jersey. Um, and Mercy says that She's heard a lot about the presence of botulism in round bale haze. You know, we've already talked about hay, but round bales are these huge, huge bales. Um, I don't even know how much they weigh. Uh, I've never fed from from round bales myself. But she wants to know if if it is more prevalent in these large round bales that you free feed horses from, or is it just as common as small, conventional, maybe an 80-pound or 60-pound bale of hay? Well, it's important to go back to the uh, the, the thought that uh, the spores, again, can be present anywhere. So those spores could be bailed up in a round bale of hay, or they could be bailed up in a small square bale of hay. They could be bailed up in a large square bale of hay. They could be bailed up in any, any form of presentation of that hay. Uh, so... The potential for the spore to be there is uh, is there no matter what size or shape of the bale. Now, when we talk about those large round bales of hay, uh, those are much more bulky. It's much more important to um, be sure that that uh, the hay has cured properly. Because if we happen to bale up a spot of of, of grass that hasn't cured pop properly. Uh, then inside that very dense, large, uh, round bale, it's more apt for that, uh, again, to start uh, causing decay in there. It becomes anaerobic again, and if those uh, spores are present, then they can the bacteria can start to produce its toxin. So it's more likely to find those bad spots, if you will, in those large, round bales of hay. The spores could be in any size or shape of hay bale. So they're more bulky. If curing is much more important because the moisture has nowhere to go deep inside that uh, that round bale of hay. Another thing to consider is that those round bales often aren't stored in as uh, nice of a condition as uh, or uh, as nice of a building or shelter, let's say, as those small square bales are. So if they were sitting on the ground or if they were exposed to uh, moisture to rain. Again, certainly there could be more of a chance of them developing 
uh, spots where they could there could be some decay again providing a good environment for the spores to to uh, uh, start to produce toxin so the more the rail bell is more implicated in in botulism but it, it's the spores can be anywhere but it's usually the, the curing the, the storing and the more chance or the larger chance of those round bells having a bad spot in there. The second thing to consider or another thing to consider is that when we feed round bells, typically we just set that entire bell out for the horse. We're not really paying close attention to the quality of the interior of the bell or if there happened to be a bad spot in that bell. So we don't know really as well what those horses are consuming. If we're feeding those small square bells, Usually those are hand-fed a flake or two at a time, so people usually are inspecting those bells much more closely, and if there happen to be a bad spot within a, a bell, uh, then the person is more apt to find it and therefore not feed it uh, to, to the horse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you're breaking off those flakes one at a time, it's easier to find uh, strange things or weeds or whatever. Although my my hay guide, there's no weeds in his hay, so <laughs> I'll say that for him. Um, we have a question here along the same lines of the round bales. And actually, here in Oregon, we don't have the round bales. We have large uh, square bales or rectangle bales that are about 800 pounds. Um, so I don't think that the round is the important part. It's the that it's a really large bale of hay. Um, 800,000 pounds. Um, but Linda in North Carolina wants to know if you should be vaccinating your horse for botulism because they're eating from a round bale. Is that an indication that you should add that to your vaccination program or not? You know? Well, certainly, again, feeding round bales is not the only way that your horse could get botulism. However, it does seem to increase the chance or the risk factors just for the reasons we just talked about. So if you are in an endemic area uh, where botulism uh, is known to be certainly and you're feeding round bells, then I don't think there's any doubt that vaccination, uh, again, for type B would be recommended uh, in that situation. Okay. And we did get a lot of these round bale questions, and, and I think that probably is partially because of the high hay costs, and that is a value way to, to buy hay is in, in the large round bales rather than, than the smaller ones. But lots and lots of questions on that, um, Dr. Little. But we have another one for you, and this is from uh, Asa in Sweden. And Asa wants to know how effective the vaccine is for botulism and what's the frequency and program for giving it to the horses. Um, us is also asking if there's a possibility for a horse to develop natural antibodies to the toxin or the bacteria. Uh, Dr. Little, do you have a response for Asa? Yes. Uh, the vaccine is very effective. Uh, again, I need to stress that it is only type B, so it's, only, it's very effective, but only effective for uh, preventing type B botulism in horses. That's B as in boy. Uh, knock on wood, we do not know of any horse that has been properly vaccinated with uh, Botvax B that has developed botulism. So we feel very comfortable that the vaccine is, is very effective. Usually, uh, or the, the correct uh, frequency uh, to give the shots is that initially, if the horse has not been vaccinated before, it's a three-shot series with each shot or each dose coming one month apart. So it's three doses with each dose coming one month apart. Then after that initial series, it is one dose uh, per year or one dose annually after that. As far as developing natural antibodies to the toxin, I suppose there is a, is a slight possibility of that, however, I think that if, if you're exposed to enough toxin, one, and it doesn't take much, as Dr. Johnson alluded to earlier, uh, if you're exposed to very much toxin at all, you're going to see signs and symptoms from that, uh, from that toxin exposure. And if you're exposed to such small amounts that you don't develop disease, I think it would be very difficult for the body to uh, mount much of an immune response uh, to that very, very small amount of toxin. So uh, my thoughts on that is it's not not likely uh, that a horse would be would develop uh, a great uh, antibody response or a great immune response to 
uh, to the toxin over time. Okay. And I just want to let everyone know that we're down to just five minutes left. I just looked at the clock. This hour has gone by really fast. Um, but I'm going to give the next question to Dr. Johnson. And that is, it's actually my question. I want to know about protecting foals uh, with vaccination. Do we vaccinate the foals, vaccinate the broodmare so that there's antibodies in the colostrum? What are the recommendations? And I'm sure, Dr. Little, you have, have information on that as well. Well, the answer to your question is, is yes to both. So in areas where the foals may develop this shaker foal syndrome or botulism, we absolutely recommend vaccinating the broodmares, you know, anywhere from four to six weeks prior to them giving birth to make sure that they have antibodies in their colostrum to help protect the foals. And then we also recommend vaccinating the foals. And as far as we know, having maternal antibody does not impair the foal from developing their own antibodies against botulism. So we recommend both of those things. Okay. Um, and then, uh, Dr. Little, we got quite a few questions here with just a few minutes left. I'm going to try to smush some of this stuff together. Um, we got lots of questions about botulism in irrigated pastures. And I'm in an area where, where we use irrigation, flood irrigation on pastures. Um, is that also a contributor to botulism? Does that create that anaerobic uh, environment? I don't, the water itself doesn't necessarily create that anaerobic environment. If there is vegetation on the ground that is uh, not live and growing and we flood or a pasture becomes uh, uh, more saturated or moist, then certainly that that dead vegetation on the pasture could lead to the development of uh, those spores if they are present to start to become uh, active again and make the uh, make the toxin. But the actual water itself it could contain spores. Again, the, the point I guess I've tried to make is spores could be anywhere and everywhere, but the water itself would not be a typical source of, of toxin itself. Okay. And Dr. Little, we have a question specifically from Elizabeth in Ogden, Utah, and she lost two horses to what the vet suspects is botulism based on clinical signs. They're doing lab tests, and by now she's gotten those back. Um, she hadn't at the time that she submitted her question. But they, they're they believing that the new flow of irrigation water or something out in the pasture caused you know the horses to, to pick up the spores or the toxin. Um, They've removed the horses from that pasture. She wants to know how long before she can put her horses back out there. I think that would be really scary, losing two horses, thinking it's related to the pasture. When can the horses go back out on that pasture? It, it would be very difficult to make an accurate assumption or guess there. I guess my my best thing I could suggest would be to consult with, with her veterinarian there locally to, to get some ideas and... and and, and ideas and, and thoughts about when it would be safe. But again, uh, I would want certainly the environment to dry out. And if there happen to be, again, uh, clumps or areas where vegetation has, has piled and again has that chance of starting to decay, then we're gonna have to either remove those, uh, those portions or uh, let that uh, let that area dry out so that it uh, again doesn't provide that great environment for that bacteria to survive and live. Okay, and Dr. Johnson, we have a question from Laura in Hillsboro, Oregon, and Laura wants to know if there's any way to look at a pelleted feed and know if it's questionable and could contain botulism. I will say that it is it would be exceedingly rare for a pelleted feed to be responsible for a botulism case that almost never happens in my experience. Now, obviously, if you were to find a dead animal in the pelleted feed, a dead rat or a mouse or something like that, I certainly would not feed um, that feed to the horses. But in terms of containing spores and providing the right environment for growth, it rarely happens with pelleted feed, if ever. Okay. Well, we are down to our, our very last minute here. And so um, we have a bunch of questions left, but we do have to call it quits for the night. So I want to ask each of you what you think the most important thing is for people to understand about botulism and protecting their horses. And um, I'll ask Dr. Little to go first. Thank you. The, 
the points I, I would like to stress would certainly be uh, education, consulting with your veterinarian, consulting with sources that would enable you to determine your risk level for uh, being uh, at risk for uh, contracting botulism. And then uh, know the different types, know the different geographical predisposition or uh, of botulism and the different types and be prepared and be aware of, of the clinical signs and symptoms so that one, you can recognize those early, and if your horse is affected, certainly uh, get the appropriate medical treatment started as soon as possible. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Little. Dr. Johnson? I agree with everything Dr. Little just said. I think that education and knowing the signs of botulism, especially the early ones, are of the utmost importance so that if an owner has a horse that's not cleaning up its feed or it just seems to be dropping more feed from its mouth. Now, obviously, that could be any number of things, but to recognize that that could potentially be an early case of botulism and involve the veterinarian right away to see whether it is or it isn't because time is of the essence when you're dealing with botulism and trying to treat it successfully. Okay. Well, thank you. And thank you to everyone who is listening live, everyone who submitted questions, everyone who will be listening after we archive this event. I want to thank our experts, Dr. Johnson and Dr. Little, for taking an hour out of their evening to help educate our audience. Uh, also, a special thanks to our sponsor, Neogen, for bringing this to everyone Uh and making it available free. I want to let everyone know that we have thousands of articles on thehorse.com, um, many of them about botulism. We have a fact sheet on botulism on, on the website. So go to thehorse.com, search for it if you were looking for more, more information. And um, as always, hopefully all the information we have will help you better care for your horses. Thank you for listening, and hopefully you can join us next month.